Ken. We are uh, delighted you are here. Uh, Holy Week starts next week, but for us at Wheaton Bible Church, it really starts tonight with this time of prayer. We want to encourage you to join us as we ask God to do incredible things during Holy Week this Easter 2015. And tonight at 6 o'clock, as Chris mentioned, we'll be praying. Please, please join us. All right, today uh, we end our series in this amazing man, one of the most amazing men that has ever lived, and that is uh, King David. David, uh, by the way, is the only Old Testament character to have two rather extensive biographies about him in the Old Testament. The first one... Uh, is found in the books of First and Second Samuel. Originally, they were one book. That's where we have been during this series over these last months. But today, we're going to flip to the biography that was written much later, which is found in First Chronicles. Now, David was a man that was incredibly, incredibly uh, connected. All of us today are longing for connection. Unconsciously, we're longing for connection with uh, God. Uh, consciously, we're longing for meaningful connection with other people. All of us are longing uh, for connection. Few people were as connected as David. Why? Well, when you have the courage to be imperfect, like David did, and to admit it, and the courage to live openly and honestly, and not to isolate or not to retreat because of a sense of shame or regret. When you live openly and honestly, and even admit it publicly like David did, when you live from the heart like David did, when you're as loving and as caring and as inclusive as David was, you will connect with others. You, you will connect. But what's so very fascinating about David, what makes his story, this true story, so incredible, is that in spite of all David's ups and downs, his missteps, his sin, his uh, weaknesses, David lived deeply, organically connected with the living God. And that story of David is just incredible. And today, as we come to the end of David's life, we come to the end of our series. I want you to grab your Old Testaments, turn on your Old Testaments, grab a Bible in front of you if you need one, and turn to the last couple books of First Chronicles, or last couple chapters, I should say. First Chronicles 28 and 29. Now, if you are opening a Hebrew Bible... First and Second Chronicles is one book would be at the end of that Bible because they were written much later. But in our Bibles, because they're a part of history, they're included in the historical section, so they're found after First and Second Kings. It's in those Bibles in front of you. It's around where we're going is about page 450. And what I want to do today is I want you to three, see three links in the chain of David's connection. 
his connection to others, but especially primarily his connection to God. And I got to tell you, I find these to just be so amazing, so interesting. So turn with me to chapter 28. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, read bits and pieces of these two chapters so you can get the flow, so you can see David's heart, so you can see how phenomenal this guy really was. Verse 1, David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem. Then in the rest of this verse, this long verse, we have a listing of those different categories of officials. Let's pick it up in verse 2. King David rose to, his, rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you are not. God said to me, no. You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me for my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader, and for my house of Judah, he chose my family. And for my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving in his carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. Now skip down to verse 9. Here David charges his son publicly. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with a wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build as a sanctuary to build a temple, rather, as a sanctuary, be strong and do the work. So David is passing the baton for building the temple, the first temple, to his son Solomon. And what we have in the rest of chapter 28 is kind of a delineation of some of those plans and some of the outworking of the transaction that took place between David and God. Skip down to chapter 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, my son Solomon, the one whom you have chosen, or the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, all kinds of fine stone and marble. All of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir. 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings and for the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord. Then the leaders of families, 
the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. Now drop down to verse 9. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given, notice this, freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king, he also rejoiced. Now we have David's prayer. He begins, praise to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory, the majesty, the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks and praise your glorious name. Then we have one of the most interesting statements and in, I think, all of the biographies of David. He says, who am I? Seriously? One of the greatest men who's ever lived. What an incredible statement of humility. And who are my people and who should, uh, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight. We are all immigrants. Did you hear me? We're all immigrants. Aliens and strangers in your sight. As were all our forefathers, our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O oh Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for the building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. And it continues. And I'll actually come back to this. Amazing. Three links in the chain of David's connection with the living God. Number one, David could take no from God. No. David could accept the death of a dream and not hold it against God. Uh, David could accept things not working out and not be embittered toward God. In chapter 28 and verse 2, uh, we learn that David's dream was to build a temple for God. God and David had such interaction over the years over this that God apparently gave David the plans. If you look at verse 19 in chapter 28, there's a question of whether or not God actually wrote out some of these plans for the temple in the same way that he wrote out the Ten Commandments for Moses. So David had been thinking and planning to build the temple for years. So this no, this divine no was a major vocational and spiritual disappointment. God closed the door. And it was given to David the king, a man who was rarely told no. I want to slow down here for a moment because this just happens to be a problem for a lot of us. And the problem is we develop a desire, we develop a burden, a, a, a dream for a relationship, a, a job, a, a lifestyle, or this or a that. And, and like David, it can be something really good, something really legitimate. And so we pray and we begin to step into it and we plan it and we feel like God's kind of writing the plan for us, writing the prescription. And, and then all of a sudden what happens? God closes the door. And somebody dies. Or we lose a job. Or a relationship is broken. Or it's a, a divorce. 
and time goes by. And our relationship with God becomes hindered by our ongoing reaction to what we perceive to be a past injustice on the part of God. And the reason this becomes a problem is when we begin to doubt the goodness of God, what do we do? Well, we begin to separate ourselves from God. We begin to walk away from God just as we walk away from people that we believe will hurt us. So I want to say two things about this. And the first is, um, let me start with a little psychological aspect of this, and it's more than that. But we get into trouble at this very point with God when we confuse a want for a need, when we make a want a need. Uh, When my kids were younger, I I loved having fun, loved doing things with them, Um, but there was one place I would avoid, one place I wouldn't take them, and that was Toys R Us. (laughs) And you parents and grandparents know exactly what I'm talking about because there's something in the air, I, I think it comes out the vents when you walk in that store and a little three-year-old and, or four-year-old uh, all of a sudden sees a video or a doll or a game or a bike. And in two seconds, they are absolutely convinced if they don't get what they want, they will die. <laughs> uh, uh, right there. And if you don't provide it, you are unloving. Now, Toys R Us has made millions and millions of dollars uh, convincing three, four, five-year-olds that what they want is, in fact, a need. And then we just watch certain parents uh, march right into that. Now, if you work at Toys R Us, I have nothing against your store. (laughs) But my point is we all have this tendency, like little children, to flip a want into a need. And then we end up judging the goodness of God when he doesn't come through. And we may not throw a tantrum like a three or four year old. uh, But if God doesn't come through and and our heart is breaking, we have this tendency to walk away from God, to distance ourselves from God because God didn't give you something he never promised to give you in the first place. But you've turned a want into a need. And you sweep all sorts of wants into that category. When David says in verse 2 of chapter 28, I had it in my heart, he's saying it was deeply embedded as a want, as a desire, but he never confused it for a need. And when God said no, he got over it. And he didn't hold it against God. There's a second thing here, and and here we move really from the domain of psychology to to theology, And, and what happens to us and the reason we get in trouble is that we lose sight of the sovereignty of God. In, in, in these kind of moments, I mean, we're in pain, we're hurting, it's, it's shattered, there's all pieces all over the place. But I want you to see David here, after expressing his desire in verses 2 and 3, The next paragraph in chapter 28, what does David do? David talks about God's rule, God's reign. Five times he does this by using the word chose or chosen. God chose me, God chose my family, 
God then chose my son. He's saying God chose my son. He didn't choose me to build the temple. So why in the world was David okay with a divine no? Because he knew God was calling the shots. He knew God was in control. We call that God's sovereignty. And amazingly, he found comfort in that, even though he was the king and hardly anybody in his life ever told him no. I mean, God is telling, uh, saying no to one of the most potent men that's ever lived, one of the most godly men. And David doesn't whine here. He doesn't say, God, look how I've served you. Look how I've spent myself. Look, look at all, all this I've done. Uh, David says, okay. David says, I'm cool. And what we have here is a beautiful picture of humility and allegiance to a higher authority and, and, and submission. And David could handle a denied dream. Now that's the first link. Let me go on to the second. The second thing I want you to see here at the end of, of David's life. And, and it's this. I, I want you to see David's passion. His passion for the presence of God that comes through in his commitment to see the temple built. Now, I'm going to have to work at this with you for a moment. The temple that Solomon the son will build, and throughout history it will be known as Solomon's temple, not David's, in terms of splendor, scope, cost, um, beauty, will become one of the wonders of the ancient Near East. Here's a couple of pictures, artist renderings, uh, of the temple. We don't know for sure, but there's a lot of material in the Bible on this. Um, what we do know is that this was incredibly beautiful, incredibly magnificent, and it symbolized the glory and the sovereignty and the majesty of God. But we must understand the temple was never just a place. It was a ministry. In, in the storehouses, the poor were provided for, uh, the broken, the hurting, the, the guilty, the shamed would come, offer sacrifices, experience restoration. But the temple is more. So go back to verse 2 in chapter 28 again. Look at how David describes the temple. He describes it as a place of rest uh, for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, look at this picture of, of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box made 500 years earlier by Moses, overlaid in gold. Uh, on the top was a gold mercy seat, where once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would come in and smear blood on the mercy seat to atone for Israel's sin. But over the years, Israel had neglected God. Oh, 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 centuries, uh, decades. And they had neglected the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. So by the time of David, when we get to these two biographies of David, we have all this material in these biographies about David bringing the Ark back into the center of Israel. Because where was the Ark? Well, when, when David shows up on the scene and takes over and begins to rule Israel, the ark is in some remote corner on the border uh, of Israel and Israel's archenemy, the Philistines. 
And the location of the ark there on the border is really a metaphor for where Israel was spiritually. Israel believed in God, but God was remote. Israel went through the rituals, but God wasn't at the center. God wasn't Israel's friend, Israel's lover. Israel was disconnected from God. And so David comes along, and David sends through the ark, has the ark brought back into Israel, and one of the major festivals in the history of Israel, and the ark is brought to Jerusalem. But David wants more. He wants God's glory, God's splendor to be seen by the surrounding nations, to be clearly seen by Israel. So God lays on David's heart this plan to build a temple around the ark. And David calls it a place of rest for the ark. And what you need to know what David is doing is he's bringing the presence of God, if I can speak that way, back into the center of the lives of the people of Israel. And that's what this ark and that's what this um, temple is all about. And then in verse 2, he goes on and he uses another metaphor and he says uh, uh, the, the temple will be a footstool of the feet of God. A metaphor of what? Well, a metaphor of God's dominion, God's rule, uh, God's power, and God's presence. So here's what I want you to see. David doesn't have a need to build a building for the sake of a building. Uh, David is not building a monument when he lays out the plans for the temple uh, to himself like the pharaohs did with the pyramids. David is passionate about the temple because he's passionate about the presence of God. He's passionate about bringing the presence of God into the people. So this is why here at the end of David's life, the temple is so central. And frankly, David's passion at the end of his life for the presence of God among his people is one of the most beautiful things about David. He longs that they will connect with God like he connects with God. Now last Monday, remember here in Chicago last Monday, it got into the 70s and we thought we woke up and we were in Florida. And at the end of the day, um, around sunset, my, my tank was on empty. So I grabbed my Bible and I went outside and I'm reading through the book of Romans, and I just read and reread Romans chapter 12 about God's mercy. And the sun set. And the sky went from blue to orange to pink. And I had this overwhelming sense of God's presence all around me and God's grace. And it's exactly what I needed. Because I know I am nothing. I am nothing apart from the presence of God. 
and there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no contentment uh, deeper than the experience of the, the presence of God. And this is what David is negotiating for for his people. It's why the temple is such a big deal. It's not a building thing. It's a presence of God thing. And that God would give Israel the Ark of the Covenant, that God would give Israel the tabernacle, that God would give Israel uh, the temple, that God would give the church Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. All demonstrates how deeply God desires his people to experience his presence. God doesn't want to be stuck on the border of your life. God wants to be at the center. God wants to be your best friend, your most faithful, your greatest companion, your, your, your deepest, most profound lover. And David got that. And David was vitally connected to God. That's the second link. So, so what we've seen is David's submission to the sovereignty of God, link number one. The, the second link is passion for the presence of God. And now I want to move to the third, which is uh, David's uh, devotion to God because of his sense of the love of God. But let me say it, state it a little differently. And here I'm going to step on some of your toes. Uh, let me state it like this, because what's so crazy in chapter 29 is David's generosity. So David was crazy generous because he knew the love of God. Because he had tasted and seen the love of God. And so we have, look at chapter 29, this very first paragraph in chapter 29 is an incredible, rather detailed description, right? The details there, not by accident. A detailed description of David giving to the temple project. Now, we don't know how much this was in, in, in terms of dollars because this is weight, not coinage. Um, it, but it's a huge amount of money. Millions, some say more, billions. We just don't know for sure. It's really hard to, to measure that 3,000 years ago. But what is striking and what we do know is that David doesn't give just a portion of his wealth. He gives it all gives everything to the temple. And then David's generosity triggers a profound generosity on the part of his leaders. That's the next paragraph. And when we come down, slide down to verse 9, we are told they gave freely and wholeheartedly and everybody's rejoicing. It's a party. Now what's going on? Two comments, two observations. This is one of the most dramatic illustrations of wholehearted devotion to God in the Bible. Let me show you that. So go back to chapter 28 and verse 9. David is speaking to his son Solomon. We read this and notice... Uh, David says, Solomon served God with what? With wholehearted devotion. Compound word, one of the words in Hebrew behind this is shalom, the Hebrew word for uh, peace and, and justice and rightness. 
wholehearted shalom devotion. Uh, then if you go to verse 3 of chapter 29, David says, in my, and here's the word, in my devotion. And then if you skip down to verse 5, he says, who's willing to consecrate? What does the word consecrate mean? It means to set yourself apart for God. And then in verses 17, 18, and 19, uh, this section we started to read, David emphasizes the heart. And, and when we get down to verse 19, he repeats his instructions of Solomon. Only this time he is praying and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion. So the entire emphasis for David is a heart emphasis. This is not a money thing fundamentally. This is a heart thing. So behind and underneath David's extraordinary generosity, I mean this crazy generosity, is an extraordinary heart for God. That's described here in the Old Testament as wholehearted devotion. Now what is wholehearted devotion? Well, wholehearted devotion is the willingness, now follow me, to follow God without conditions. And over and over, Israel hadn't done that. Israel had tried to control God, tried to manipulate God, tried to put God in a, in a box. And you know what that is? One of the ways to, to describe that is that's magic. Because, because magic is seeking the power of God without giving your life to God. And here's what it looks like for us. Lord, if you help me land this sale. Lord, if you help me get this job. Lord, if you um, give me this relationship or, or this or that. Lord, if you give me that, you know, yeah, then I'm going to go to church. and you know, Then I'm going to follow you. The problem with that is what is on the other side of your if? Job, health, marriage. Whatever's on the other side of your if is really your God. Not the living God. And you're not giving yourself wholeheartedly to God. The truth is you're manipulating God. You're trying to control God. You're trying to use God to get what you want. And it's magic. It's not wholehearted devotion. Now, you know my story, most of you know my story, and you know I've been engaged and married twice now. And what that means is I've made double the mistakes over the years, said twice as many um, uh, dumb things as many of you men. So, for example, the day after I got engaged, the first time, one of the... Um, most embarrassing things I've ever said in hindsight, right? We've been engaged for 24 hours. Carol said yes. And the next day, I asked her to marry me, day one. Day two, I looked her in the eye and said, I've made a mistake. <laughs> there are some words for that. We, I won't go into that. <laughs> it, it, it's really easy for all of us to say things 
that are just wrong. And actually, marrying Carol turned out to be one of the best things of my life. But I thought I'd made a mistake day two. But let me tell you what's worse. What's worse is saying to your fiancé, if she asks you, why do you love me? And you say, well, I love you because you're a trust fund. Or I love you because I got all this, these student loans and you got a good job and I want you to pay off my loans. And, and, uh, that's worse. Because what's going on there is you're communicating you don't love her, you love what she can do for you. That's manipulation. And you're treating your fiancé as, as a commodity and if she is smart, she will do what? She will withdraw her presence. Now, do you really think God is any different? God isn't a force. God is a, a, a person. And unless you can say, God, I, I, I will love you regardless, I will serve you unconditionally, like David does here, unless you want God alone for who he is, or for who he is alone, that's not wholehearted devotion, it's magic. And you will never, never, ever experience the presence of God. And then this relates to our giving. This is a second observation I want to make. And let me say it this way, and here I'm borrowing from some others. It's possible to give your money to God and not give yourself, but it's impossible to give yourself to God without giving to God generously. Wholehearted devotion to, to God changes how we view money. In, in this, money just becomes money. Because we have experienced God's love and God's grace, we know we are loved by God, and we don't base our significance, our security, on our assets, our income, our, our, our possessions. And we understand at the core of our beings that money doesn't stop alcoholism or drug addiction or adultery. It doesn't stop cancer. It doesn't stop divorce. Uh, but along the way, we lose sight of that and we ignore the teaching of uh, Jesus that repeatedly warned against greed because it's such a subtle thing and we continue even today to overweight money. So money controls us. And then we read about David's radical generosity here and we say to ourselves, we don't say it out loud, but we say to ourselves, this is crazy. And the reason it's, it's crazy is because we struggle with being wholeheartedly devoted to God. Now, let me conclude. Uh, what are we to do? Well, here's where the example of, of David points right to Jesus Christ. You see, David's sacrifice, his, his generosity, giving all his assets to the temple breaks the power of money in the lives of David's leaders. And so you have this revival, you, you have this incredible generosity because David's example, David's sacrifice breaks the dominion of money. And David's sacrifice here points to the even greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ who didn't give money but who gave his life 
to break the dominion of idols and, and money and power and lust and all of that in our lives. And you and I cannot connect with the living God on our own. We need a Savior. And the sacrifice of David here points to the even greater sacrifice of Jesus, the son of David, who t said, I'm the temple. What is the temple? The temple is a bridge to God. What is Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate bridge to God, the ultimate link. Because each and every one of us were created for connection. And we long for connection. And Jesus comes into this world, the only person who has ever lived with wholehearted devotion to God. And at the end of his life, what does he experience? He doesn't experience the presence of God. He experiences the absence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the absence of God so he can give us the presence of God. We can't get it any other way. So what I'm saying is wholehearted devotion, as we see here, isn't a work. It's not something you can conjure up. It's not something where you suck it up and, and you just get it. Uh, this kind of transforming life that David lived is a gift. And it's a gift that comes to us this side of the cross when we see the wonder of Jesus' sacrifice. And we let the grace of God in Jesus Christ continually wash over us each and every day of our lives. And I long for this for you. And, and now maybe there's things that God has said no to you about. And you need this morning, I mean right now, to let it go. Uh, maybe there's things you're, you're, you're passionate about that are getting you in trouble. And the truth is you aren't passionate about the presence of God. May God uh, speak to you about this. Uh, but this, this devotion, this wholehearted uh, devotion, this uh, response to God comes to David in light of who God is. And that's what we see in chapter 29. Jesus came to deliver you that you might live in and with a wholehearted connection to God. And if you've never done so, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Now let's pray and let's continue to worship. Father, we thank you for this incredible story of David. And we ask that you would give us the grace uh, to see, the eyes to see, the ears to hear. Uh, that we might see this isn't really about what we need to do. This is all about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.